Do you want to become a better songwriter? Well, we created a very simple 10-minute songwriter personality test, and it's going to help you better understand who you are as a writer, and it's going to help you in the writer's room when you're writing with other writers, because you're going to be able to identify what kind of writer they are, maybe even have them take the songwriter personality test. If you're curious and you want to take the songwriter personality test today, just visit songwriterpersonalitytest.com or go to the link on the writingworship.co website. You're listening to the Brave Worship Podcast with Chrissy Nordhoff and Mary Beth Dodd. Brave Worship is all about encouraging women to write, lead, and live worship. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome. It's another brave day. It is a brave day today. Among us. Happy fall. I know, it's fall. Are you excited? I'm really excited. I was sitting upstairs in my chair when all these rustling leaves flew by. and the best. I had to get up and decorate, so. Immediately? Immediately. Well, I might have apple crisp at my house today. <gasps> you did not bring me any? It wasn't done when I left. Fired. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was someone else. Who was it? <laughs> Megan was making it. Oh, Megan. This is going to make Is it gluten-free? Apple... Yeah, it'll be gluten-free, oh. but Chris is going to make apple, hot apple cider. You know, <gasps> I love his so apple good. cider with red hots. Is that the one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a few secret red hots in there. You'd never know. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Just enough to make it kind of red. That's. I just mm-hmm. love like... Well, and I just posted about this this week. Soup season. It's my favorite. I love soup season. Isn't it the best? Every day. Me too. And I almost do because I drive up to Urban Market all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I've still never been there. I don't think. Oh my gosh. Every day I can possibly do it. I go get their soup and kombucha. Is this a joke? No, it's real life. They have the best. They have the best soup ever. It's amazing. Do they like, have all different kinds? Or what? Yeah, every day it's a different one. They only have one every day, but it's different every day. And it's always like so clean with bone broth, everything. So I just get a 16 ounce and then 12 Damn. ounce kombucha. That's, I mean, I literally could just eat that forever and be happy. Do you ever bring it home at night for dinner? No, but that's a good idea. That'd be nice of you. Yeah, I should think of other people. <laughs> it's hard to think of other people when delicious soup is Well, steak. and I think no one else likes to eat like me. Like, they all want, like, you know, orange chicken that comes in a bag, so. Oh, well, that makes life easy, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it does. Oh, well, or yes. I could spend hours cooking healthy myself, which I've done many times. I used to do that, too. Oh, it's tiring. I'm not. It's so much work. It's so much work. I would do it if they loved it. But it's like you work for two hours on something. And they come home with bags of Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I've heard this story. Yeah. I have heard this story. I Oh, my gosh. You know how oh. like, we have a pot roast thing at our house. So Chris, oh, yeah, that's right. I don't know what is wrong with him in this one area, but he does not like pot roast. I can't believe it. And turns out none of my kids do either right now. So what? I made this like, lovely, in my opinion, pot roast <laughs> a couple of weeks ago after church. Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be awesome. It's you tried be to get Chris ready. to eat We're it. We're going to sit down. Like He'll eat it without complaining anymore, but the kid's... All did not like it. Asher actually literally threw up. 
Because <laughs> he doesn't like the stringy texture. Oh, no. He was like dry heaving at is the that, table. Is that why Chris doesn't like it? I, don't, I think the he thinks it's like flavorless and it's like a cheap piece of meat that someone cooks in water and expects you to eat. Like that's his sort of oh, view on it. Okay. But I've had some really good pot roast. He doesn't like things cooked in water, does he? Oh, now that you mention it. Like, just in general, if you're cooking stuff <laughs> in water, Chris doesn't usually like it. <laughs> Maybe not. But I'm like, I don't even, I, what am I raising? If these boys don't like pot roast, what is going to happen? Yes. Well, maybe you need to go get them some soup at Urban Market. <laughs> Maybe, <I do. laughs> Maybe we got to switch kids. But yes. My kids might eat your pot roast. Let's switch it up. It's okay. <laughs> I'll try it I'll out. I'll send it over here next time. Well, tell us about this podcast because I'm so excited. Yeah. So we actually have a series we're introducing today and it's going to run for the next three weeks and it's with none other than our good friend and really... Honestly, he's sort of been like a father figure, um, Ray Hughes. So if you haven't heard of Ray Hughes before, you need to go check him out on YouTube and hear some of his other messages. This one's going to be great. We're going to share with you today. Um, Ray is the one that led our trip to Scotland a year ago, and it was life-changing for me and I know for many of the other girls that went on the trip. Um, but he's sort of got this like uh, love of history but it's it's merged with a love for storytelling and he has an awesome sense of humor and he talks like you know he's got all these southern sayings and stuff that are hilarious that he makes up he grew up in Kentucky so you'll hear it um but he's super wise on worship too he's actually a songwriter so he can tell you where all the instruments are in the bible um and tell you tons of information on all of it he it feels like He's sort of a walking worship encyclopedia. Whoa, that's what it feels like. That's awesome. Yeah. And I've never loved history until Ray Hughes. I can say that honestly. But he came to share with us a little bit about just the history of what happened here in Nashville before any of us were here. Um, and it was really important. We talked a little bit about that surrounded event. Um, but this was sort of in that same, you know, zone as what has happened here and what are we praying for and um, how does this all work? And um, yeah, just, I feel like, and, and that night I, or a couple of days before I called Ray to just, you know, go over details of that night. And I said, I feel like the Lord's showing me something new about unity because I always thought unity was the people in front of me, like the body of Christ, right? Like I just thought of alive people. I never thought of the saints that came, that went before us. And um, the Lord was showing me um, in preparation of hearing this message that Ray was going to share about the past that, you know, the unity that we need to have in the body of Christ also goes backwards. Mm. What's been prayed, what's been prophesied, what's been promised to people that may not have even been fulfilled, sort of like in Hebrews where it talks about the hall of faith. Many of them never got to see the promises fulfilled, but their lives are made whole with ours um, in seeing it fulfilled in ours, you know? That's awesome, yeah. So, um, and just felt like the Lord was saying, there are still prayers hanging in the air over this town. Um, and it's important. It's an important metropolis, and it's an export of culture. We've talked about that. Um, it's a place that's definitely... What am I trying to say? Export? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, he covers all that and so much more. And this ended up being um, a beautiful night, but it was 
three podcasts worth of goodness. So we are going to share this with you over three podcasts. And um, we just felt strongly that this message needed to be heard. And I will also share, Ray is going to take us as Brave Worship over to Ireland a year from now. So next year, in two weeks, no, in a week, um, it'll be exactly a year that we'll be in Ireland. So um, exciting times. We have a heart for that part of the world. Our family is really deeply rooted in that part of the world. Um, as well as raise, but I feel like ministry wise, there's, there's a connection between here and there. And, um, that's also in Ray's heart. So it's unbelievable what happens when you connect with one person that you're supposed to and how that just, um, can open a new path. And it certainly has for us meeting, meeting Ray. So I think you'll enjoy him. All right. Take a listen. Well, guys, I've got a a whole bunch of stuff on my heart and a whole bunch of stuff that I intentionally want to make sure that I don't forget to say tonight. But also, uh, I don't I don't want to get trapped too much in the information place and uh, and and miss uh, the the truth. You know, and and you know how I feel about the facts versus truth. You know. Facts inform, but truth transforms. And so I want to make sure that we give way for, for the truth to awaken something in us. And typically that happens out of, out, of, of, out of song, out of prayer, out of prophecy, also out of, uh, out of poetry and creativity. Because uh, we all know that uh, in David's day, which is a representation of what you guys all carry, in David's day, it was about accessing the presence, and out of the presence, as a result of prayer, would come the poetry that would become the language for the generations to come. So remember what I, I gave you guys an assignment on High Street, standing beside of the cathedral. St. Child's Cathedral on High Street there on, the, on in that misty day, I said, your, your job is about truth and beauty. Your job is to, to marry truth and beauty and therefore change the generation that you're in and the one that'll come behind you. And that's what, uh, and that's what music does and that's what poetry does. And, but that's also what the word of God does. And the songs that we sing are born out of David's spontaneity of interaction with God and his presence is what awakened all, God's presence is what awakened all that prophecy. And then he lived his life by prayer connected to those prophetic encounters. And remember now, prophecy is not about telling you what to do. Prophecy is about awakening who you are. And so when, when a, when a word comes from God, what, what it really does is, is in the same way, you know, prophetically you can, um, predict the future or prophetically you can create the future or prophetically you can prevent the future. And we always see it as as create and 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 uh, or predict and create is typically what we think of prophecy being uh, the voice of. But in, but in fact, there are some things in this world that the enemy would love to try to raise up and capture the next generation that we have the ability to not only the ability but the grace to prevent because we're creating place for presence. And, uh, and, and the purposes of God are what you're carrying, guys. You don't, I don't have to tell you that. 
Well, tonight what we're talking about is prayer, but I'm going to talk about it from a place that you may have never uh, may uh, have never thought of it uh, in this way. Uh, we know that prayer should always be dressed in the language and images that best sing our truest heart. It doesn't have to be uh, liturgical or, or systematic prayer or even daily discipline prayer. All of all of those expressions are wonderful. But I want, I want to take a completely different look at it tonight. When I say prayer should be dressed in the language and images that best sing our truest heart, he, it's because he knows the truest you and lofty pretense is always void of the honest beauty that your prayers are supposed to carry. Wonder finds its purest notes in the simplest of prayers. In the same way that your songs, the simple ones are the ones that we carry. Not not just the complexity, um, awakening informed minds to experience, uh, you know, the intellectual or academic aspect of music. And sometimes we don't need deeper thoughts as much as we just need deeper silences. And David's prayers and poetry is what became our truth. And they were born out of his song. So his truth then becomes our song. And so what I want to talk to you about tonight is, is this is our story, and this is our story, and this is our song. But I don't want, I didn't want to title it that necessarily because it just sounds a bit almost religious and a little bit trite because it's been sung so much it's it's become a part of a of an embraced language and sometimes what happens is is we can over verbalize a revelation of God and pretty soon it begins to lose something in us because we've been there. But in fact I'm asking the Holy Spirit tonight to awaken prayer in us from places that we've never experienced God and out of that prayer and presence and poetry come the prophecies into your life that that uh that not only predict, but create and prevent. So from that, when I say this is our story, that may be kind of all the preaching you're going to get tonight is what I just gave you. Because mm-hmm. I, te- I want to tell you a story about where, where you live and the purposes God may have brought you from all over the world and all down through the DNAs and the generations and all of that to bring you here as as a as those that will capture God's promises. Now watch. Everything God has ever performed in the past was a promise to a future generation. And so that's why I want to talk about all these things God did in Nashville. Can you say that one more time? Everything that God's ever performed was a promise to a future generation because he thinks eternally. Right? So everything that we look back and see the wonder of God in in a former generation, when it awakens the real you, you know what that was? That was not just a performance of God. That was a promise to you. And now you carry the language of that in your prayer. And out of your out of your truest language, you will activate that and sustain those desires of God and the doings of God. You're you're a part of a transition generation that's carrying that hope. And, you know, right now the the world's a bit stupid, but we're not here to focus on the world. You know, we we can all get on our, you know, I, I, I'm an old guy. I can jump on one real quick and take laps around the stupidity. You know, so we, we, we have a whole brand new level of idiots running loose in the world, you know. 
Yeah, but but that's not what we're about. We've got to, we've got to pursue the presence of God and find an anecdote that is life instead of cursing the darkness. Okay, so uh, let me let me let me just let me let's do it like this. There is a pretty girl that I know just walked in the door. Everybody say hello to her. Hey, Rachel. Um, I'll, so, if you don't mind, I'm going to go to a storytelling place now, okay? And I'm just going to get get out of the out of the preachish stuff here. Uh, uh, um, well, and and let's go back. We could go way back to the beginning, but I, uh, let's start here. With Nashville, Tennessee, one of the most significant things that has happened in the spiritual um, soundscape of Nashville happened over 100 years ago. There has been no city-shaking revival uh, for a long time in Nashville. There have been little cocoons of activity, Christian activity, that have had tremendous effect down through the generations. But I want to tell you about the last one that turned the city upside down. Um. And uh, and and it, it had become a city at the time. But in 1847, there were four baby boys that were born in 1847 that impacted the the generations they lived in so uh, so powerfully that they all made uh, uh, front page news a hundred years later. And uh, one of them, uh, born in 1847, that did that would have been a Scotsman named Alexander Graham Bell. And one would have been Thomas Edison. And one would have been, uh, well, you know, of course, Alexander Graham Bell, his inventiveness and ingenuity and his brilliant mind gave us the telephone that connected the world in our communication. And Thomas Edison was born in 1847, who lit the world with his genius. And uh, there was another fellow that was born in 1847 uh, uh, named Jesse James. Who made the front page news a hundred years later? But I'm, I never talk about him because uh, he was Baptist. <laughs> and uh, and my granny always told me, "Don't you never say nothing about the Baptist." Okay, so, so I don't talk about him. Uh, he was a Baptist preacher's son. Yes, he was. His, his uh, father. Uh, was, uh, got saved and started walking with God in Kentucky uh, out of the out of the outpouring of the Red River Revival and the Cane Ridge Revival. Uh, here, this young man who came from seven generations of Welsh preachers from the Pembroke area of Wales, where the Welsh Revival. And then back in those days, they didn't call them preachers; they called them poet preachers. And you, you were not, it were, you were not acceptable as a preacher unless you had poetry in your soul. And because that was the way with the rhythm and the cadence and the wonder that you could create through the imagery and the, and the meter is what held people's minds captive enough for their spirits to align with the truth that was being released in the atmosphere. And, uh, this, this young Robert James came from seven generations of the, the, those in Pembrokeshire. And when he came across, he then he then he gave his heart to the Lord, and uh, and right after he got saved, or, or right after he started walking with the Lord, or right after Jesse James was born, let me get this straight. Uh, in 1849, the gold rush broke out in California, but 
Robert James had already gone across the Mississippi and established the first ministry training school for young men to be missionaries uh, to the West. And uh, But when the gold rush broke out, uh, they said, you know what, if they're going after gold and greed and the glory, we're going to be in the middle of them as well. We're going to go there as missionaries. And he did. And he went there and left left his wife and, and two boys back at home until he could go out and establish a presence out there in the gold rush of California. And that's where he was stricken with a disease uh, uh, like uh, cholera or something, you know. Can't remember what it was, a TB maybe. But anyway, he died very quickly and left his two sons unfathered. And they, that is Frank and Jesse James. And and that's one of the reasons you find that the James coming always coming back to uh, Red River and uh, uh, in into that area uh, until this day. There's a, a real presence of Jesse James still realized there. They never have even they never have even taken changed the windows that have the bullet holes where they came in uh, and and shot the windows out in uh, in, that, in, in Logan County, Kentucky. Still there to this day. Bullet holes on the side of the bank. And uh, but anyway, I digress. There was a there was a fourth young man born in 1847 that made front page news 100 years later, and his and uh, he was he was born in a little place called Oak Bowery, Alabama. And uh, he his his father was Captain John Jones, and his mother her name was Queenie Porter Jones, and this little boy's name was Sam Jones, of course. Sam Jones, born in Oak Bowery. He was born in 1847 on October 16. And by the time he was five years old, they had already realized that he he had these really dark black eyes full of wonder. And he said that he was like a circus in full swing. He was one of these little guys that was into everything. He had had this brilliant mind. And uh, by the time he was five years old, he was always wanting to give a speech at at the school, the Oak Bowery one-room schoolhouse. Did I ever tell you all this story? A little one-room schoolhouse, and uh, and on Fridays they would have all of the children to either give a speech, they would recite a poem, or sing a song, or or something. But they would never let Sammy Sam do that because he was so much smaller than all the other kids. He didn't want him to get some sense of rejection or whatever, you know, because he just wasn't old enough to do that. And so one day uh, it came his day. And of course, all of the parents would show up in this hot one-room schoolhouse, and sure enough, there on the front row, uh, Sammy was waiting his turn, and dozed off to sleep in his mother's lap. And Miss Queenie sat there with a funeral home fan in this little one-room schoolhouse. And after a while, Mister Slayton said, "And now, next and lastly, we have little Sammy Jones." And she and Miss Queenie. They called her Miss Queenie Jones because she carried herself in such a regal manner. But she always dressed in lace, and she was this beautiful lady. And she shook old Sam awake and said, Sammy, it's your turn. And Mr. Slayton walked over and picked this little guy up who was very small for his age and stood him up on top of the desk. And he stood up there, and he he woke up, and, and, he, and he realized where he was. He wiped the sleep out of his eyes, and he straightened himself, and he said... He said, you might find, some may find it, uh, you'd find it strange to find one my age standing here speaking on the stage, but in coming years and thundering tones, the whole world will hear of Sam P. Jones. (laughs) At five years old, he prophesied his destiny. 
And how many of you know that the seeds of destiny typically are watered by storms of adversity? And so then not long after that, at about seven or eight years old, eight years old, he woke up and his mother was in heaven and uh, the most important person in his life. And right after that death, uh, it was tragedy after tragedy. And this little guy didn't know what his life was going to carry for him. And he was so alert and aware and bright and sensitive. It began to close his life down and he found escapes from that. His Captain John says, you know what? We're going to move. We'll just move over to Cartersville, Georgia, where he, where Sam, John's parents were. We'll go to grandparents. And so they moved there to Georgia. And there in Cartersville, Georgia, um, they called her Grandmother Edwards. She would, she would walk, it was Sam's grandmother. And she, her husband was Samuel Gamble Jones, uh, Sam's namesake. And there, and not long after that, Captain John married another little gal, married a sweet Christian woman named uh, uh, Miss uh, Skinner was her name, and uh, Jenny Skinner. And the, the uh, and she was trying to raise raise Sam in a godly home, but Sam was just such a wild hare. And uh, but oh, oh, Miss Edwards, she would walk. The, walk the aisles and pray, and and then she'd get out on her knees and she began to cry out to God, and she would read. She read the entire Bible cover to cover fifty three times, and every time when she would stop reading the Word of God, she'd stop reading the verse. She would she would hold the Bible close to her heart and pray that Word of God over Samuel's life. She never stopped that all her life, and all they knew was is he was a he was a he was a case. And uh, sure enough, the Civil War breaks out, and here this, uh, and he would do things like one time his grandpa was preaching on a Sunday morning. He's about thirteen, fourteen years old, and because of all the pain in his life, he the doctors diagnosed him with this malady, ulcers, kind of a thing, and uh, the the doctors diagnosed it and prescribed to him whiskey. So as a young teenager, he started taking whiskey to take away the pain. And also the loss of his mother. And because they knew he was troubled, but he was so incredibly bright and smart. So they didn't know how to deal with it in those days. And they actually prescribed whiskey. And one that one Sunday morning, while his grandfather is preaching the word of God, the back door flies open. And they look, and here comes Sam riding down the aisle on a mule. <laughs> right down through the, right into the church. Up onto the platform, across, and back then they had two aisles because the women sat on sit one side, men sat on the other, and all, and this horse, this old mule, just turns right across the platform and goes down the other aisle and out the back door and left the place totally bewildered and in a flurry of panic. And uh, they asked him, said, "Sammy, what in the world ever possessed you to do something so crazy as that?" And he said, "Well, church." He says, is what possessed me to do that? He says, I just despise a dull time. <laughs> and that was a dull time, just hear somebody talk and no activity, no action to it. Because he, he I, I, I fixed it, Eric. It just wasn't tight. I got, got it. yes, it's it's good, man. And uh, and so so that's how you kind of see where it, how how his childhood formed. But what happened? What happens next is the Civil War breaks out in Cartersville, Georgia. And Captain John goes off to fight in, in the war and now leaves him fatherless and, uh, again, lost in his life. But he had all of this creativity, but now it was being fed by the whiskey 
And, and, uh, pretty soon, uh, uh, Sherman and all of his men show up in town and they're about to burn Cartersville. But then they realize, no, Sherman's men are right down the road at Kingston, but they they didn't come and burn Cartersville for two reasons. One is, is that there was a Masonic, uh, sanctuary over that town. So, uh, 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 but, but what really stopped them from burning everything was, was the Indian man that was there. Sherman never burned a place that was connected to First Nations. Hmm. You know why? Interesting. Sure enough, interesting. It's because there was a covenant between he, he and his covenant brother was, uh, his father, Sherman's father's best friend was, uh, William, uh, uh, was, uh, Tecumseh. That's why Sherman is named William Tecumseh Sherman, named after a father's covenant that would honor uh, those people. Interesting, isn't it? And uh, so, the, so uh, what happens is, is Sam, in his quick thinking and creative wit, he decides to capture everybody's horses. Uh, when Sherman's coming to burn the town, everybody's running in panic, but not him. He runs and captures everybody's horses, so Sherman won't be able to get the horses. And uh, and then he misses his family of only by a few minutes. They were supposed to meet at the spring, and they missed each other. And so he all he knows is a young 14, 15-year-old boy, if Sherman is going south, I'm going north. And so he takes off walking at 15 years old and finds himself in Nashville, Tennessee. At the saloons down on Lower Broad, where he runs into some some Union soldiers that invite him to go to Kentucky, because he said we've already served our time. Why don't you go home? Because Sam walked into the saloon that day, a hungry young boy, and they all started uh, jeering at him and snapping at this kid. You know, uh, going to mistreat him because they were Union and he was he was a young Southern boy, and he turned his wit upon them and had them. Out of his sarcasm, laughing at one another so hard that they realized that this young storyteller had the ability to entertain uh, beyond the tensions of war. Now you hearing that? He's a fourteen, fifteen-year-old kid. Uh, I've got pictures of him at that, at that age, and he goes home with them to Eminence, Kentucky, and and walk, uh, to be a guest in one of their homes, and their young. One of the, the, the sister comes home and he sees this girl, Miss Laura McElwain, and he is smit. And, uh, but he stays there for a while. And, and then when the war was over, he made it back home. And he knew the only way that he would ever be able to have her as his wife is he would have to be able to support her. So he signs in to become a lawyer. And within nine months of study, nine months of home study, personal home study, he becomes accepted in the Georgia bar. That's how bright his mind was. And, uh, and so, but here comes more pain. And they have a little, uh, he goes back and gets Laura, brings her home. And now there is a promising young lawyer. And even the, the governor of Georgia said that's, he's the most promising young lawyer. He will be the greatest lawyer in the state of Georgia before he's over. And because he had such an ability to interrogate and also stand before the critical eyes of judge and jury, and just it was he was an amazing communicator. And uh, so, but then their little girl had a little baby and that he loved. Sam loved with all of his heart. Died, and he began to drink again and drink again. And so now he began to slide quickly 
down the ladder of success. And pretty soon he finds himself standing, looking in a mirror, everything lost. And he's standing, looking in a mirror, a totally disheveled, drunken mess, and realize he's lost his baby, he's lost his wife, he's lost everything. And in that place of brokenness, he gets the message, your father is dying, and he goes to his deathbed. And there in August of 1872, 1871, he finds himself at his father's deathbed, and his father looks at all the children and blesses every one of them. And when he gets to Sam, he says, oh, Sam, You've brought me down to my my death and sorrow. And uh, he said, just promise me you'll quit. And Sam fell across his father who was dying and made a promise to his father that he would quit. And he rose up from there. I'm making a very long story short, but I, but I think this is important because I, I want you to see what happened from there on. He goes to his grandfather and he says, "Grandfather, I gave my heart to the Lord, and I'm and I'm and uh, I've given my I've given my heart to the Lord, and and on the way to church, they're riding in the horse and buggy, and and he says, uh, he says, I think I'm called to preach. And old man Gamble, uh, John Gamble Jones, looked at him. Now you got to remember, Grandma Edwards had been praying for him all his life." And now here's this preaching grandfather. Grandma Edwards turns out to be the great, great, great granddaughter of Jonathan Edwards. And here is, you find out that everybody in Sam's family, all all the uncles, everybody for generations were men of God and preachers. And the one that never, ever was Sam. And in that moment, he had his encounter with God at his father's deathbed. And he tells his grandfather, I think I'm called to preach. And they get to church that night and they walk in and on a Sunday night and old Reverend Jones walks up to the platform and he says, I have an announcement to make. Sam believes that he's called to preach. So Sam, come on up here. (laughs) And that's how he started in the ministry. And he walked up and he opened Colossians and he read a verse and he said, you know what? I don't know much about what I just read, but all I know is, is I'm saved and I'm happy. And out of the simplicity of that testimony that he gave that night, because when he started talking, he didn't get stopped. And in a while, people started filling the altars and, uh, and they began to give their heart to the Lord. And, and so the grace and there was an infusion of God's enablement on us when we agree with the destiny that God has created us for. And so here come a grace that that was not going to yield to anything because he was awakened to his to his purpose. And and sure enough, uh, he go not long after now he and Laura are back together and they're in their home there. And he says, Laura, I, I, I'm I'm called to preach. And she said, I didn't marry a preacher. I married a lawyer. He says, well, I feel like I'm called to preach. And he says, and uh, he says, I'm tomorrow morning. I'm going to, to Atlanta to ask if they will accept me in the North Georgia conference as a preacher. Because after the Civil War, all the, pre- uh, all the preachers were either dead or, or too old to get anything done. And he says, and so he says, maybe they'll just accept someone who's not tra- a trained minister. And he goes and tell, goes down there. Uh, he was going to go down there the next day. 
And she says, if you go to Atlanta tomorrow to become a preacher, I'm going to Kentucky back to my mother. I'm not going to live with a preacher. I'm not, they starve them to death. There's the poverty. There's all, and especially in a place like Georgia that's been ravaged by Sherman and his men, I'm not going to do it. And he, he said, well, well, all right. He says, well, I'm going in the morning. He says, I told, I already told God that anything that was an obstacle to the call of my life, that he would take it out. So I'll be leaving in the morning. Okay. It's a little different than our theology today. Okay. (laughs) We have a little different thought processes now, but he, but in the middle of the night, Laura had got some kind of an attack upon her body. And she knew that in the middle of the night she was dying. And she cried out to God. I'm only telling the story. I'm not going to try to correct or uncorrect. Or, or, uh, it's not about theology. This was her encounter. Okay. In the middle of the night, she has this encounter. And Sam wakes up the next morning knowing that his life is either about to start or about to end. And he wakes up and he smells homemade biscuits cooking. And he goes down into the kitchen. And there she has the table set for him. And she says, Sam, I had an encounter last night that has insisted that I tell you that you have my blessing to go to Atlanta to see if they'll accept you as a preacher. And and she says, and if if they do, I'll be the best preacher's wife I can ever possibly be, but I'm not going to play the piano. And so he goes down there and become, and they accepted him and, and sent him to the poorest circuit in North Georgia, right into the absolute throes of poverty they went. And God began to raise them up from that place of poverty because he, he preached a no compromising truth. And it didn't matter, like one old, one old guy that was a rich man in the area and everybody was in poverty in this poor circuit. And so rich, rich man called to bring the preacher to his house and uh, to pray for him. So Sam shows up at the house to pray for this dying man on his deathbed. And this guy says, preacher, would you please pray that God would heal me? And Sam said, no, I won't do that. He said, I'll pray that God will go ahead and take you to heaven. But I'm not going to pray that God will heal you because you're of absolute no worth to the kingdom. He says, you... You have more money than anybody in this whole part of Georgia, and you wouldn't feed one orphan. You wouldn't take care of one widow. I'm not going to pray anything like that. Just you, just I'll pray that you go to heaven, but I won't pray that you stay here because you're worthless. And from a place like that, this young hayseed of a rube from Georgia, God starts honoring the truth that was in him and the conviction that was in him, and the no compromising heart that was in him. Now let's forget, again, the theology, but let's, let's look at who this, who this young guy was. And God began to bring him up, and he, he would, like somebody would mistreat a widow, he'd line them up out in front of the church, and, and he said, bring your cousins. We're going to fight this thing out, I promise you. Anybody that'll do that to a widow, I can whip you and all your cousins. <laughs> so there they will go. Okay, but out of that, see, I, I always, that's one of the reasons I always say, you know, when you get saved, God will give you a new heart, but you have to grow your backbone. <laughs> well, he had enough backbone to to stand behind, and they had to, to in those days in that culture. So that's the fella named Sam Jones who made the front page news 100 years later. But in the meantime, he leaves that pastorate and, become, and, a, and he goes over and he, and he becomes the director of an orphanage in Georgia. And he has such a heart for children 
and especially the motherless, fatherless mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. And he raises that uh, that orphanage up out of civil war debt. Mm-hmm. And and by now he has been he's uh, you know his his gift of 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 gab had made a place for that truth and that that thing that that song to come alive in him. So he winds up then preaching in Memphis. And after he preaches in Memphis, the greatest revival Memphis ever had. This young guy, 24 years old. He goes to, he goes to Knoxville. In Knoxville, he turns Knoxville upside down. And all the ministers in Nashville, Tennessee, the, the Athens of the South, the great Mecca on here on the river that controls the whole Southern culture was being controlled at the time by this little town on the river by then. Because the great Athens of the South was rising up and to, to be something to be reckoned with. But after the Civil War and after all the occupation that had happened here and after all the darkness that had happened in Nashville, they, uh, the churches were powerless to do anything about what was going on. The drunkenness, the brothels. There was a, a place over called the Black Bottom that was just full of prostitution and the whole First and Second Avenue, the, the, what were they called? The soiled doves. There were more prostitutes down there than there were people, for goodness sake, because all of those guys getting off of the steamboats and off of that that rough industrial area down there would be looking for the prostitutes, and uh, and and and, and, and again, it was still devastated from the from the, the Civil War, drunkenness, saloons, everything was there, and the church was powerless. So they sent an invite. To this young fellow, would you come and preach in Nashville, Tennessee? I sure would. He said, and so what do you require? And I says, I only require one thing. And then he said, what is that? A 5,000 seat tent. And they send a scathing, uh, Morse code, yeah, message back to him. <laughs> and they said, who, just who do you think you are that you, some hayseed from Georgia so arrogant that he feels like that we would provide a 5,000 seat tent for your ego? And he writes back and he says, this is not about my arrogance or ego. I believe God wants to do something in your town. And the only way that it's going to happen is if we walk in obedience and sacrifice and you're not doing that. So they got into this little thing and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come there in March of 1885 and I will preach. And you get me three places to preach on a Sunday. And when I get there, we'll see if God begins to move, we'll, we'll reconsider what needs to happen there. But until, uh, you know, so in other words, he didn't back off from me. He wasn't looking for a meeting. He was looking for God to do something in Nashville, one of the darkest places in America at the time. And so he shows up on, uh, on March 10. Uh, 1885, and uh, walks into the very first church we walks into was McKendry Methodist down on Church Street. And when he walks into McKendry Methodist, everybody who's anybody is there because they they want to see what's going to happen. And he and and they didn't even know nobody ever seen Sam Jones. They didn't even know it was the preacher that walked in. He looked like a wrinkled up, crumpled up salesman. What they called him in those days was drummers. Just looks like a drummer that got loose from the train. Because <laughs> they would go around drumming up business, you know. And he had a, had a, had like a plaid suit, an old wrinkled bow tie, his shirt didn't match, his pants didn't match. And he walked in and, uh, the, the service, just as the service is beginning to start, 
This guy that nobody knows walks up onto the platform, takes his coat off and throws it over the back of a chair and said, now, I know there's going to be a fight around here, so I'm going to say a few things to go ahead and get it started. (laughs) Now, you got to remember, this is the Athens of the South and all the academics and the educators and everybody is sitting there. And uh, plus, uh, not even to speak of all the religious intelligence uh, sitting everywhere, you know. And here this guy's just standing up and he says, I'm going to say a few things to get her started. I know there's going to be plenty of gossip because I, I, I can see all you long tongue heifers sitting over here right now. You, I know your type. You can sit in the kitchen and, or sit in the, in the parlor and lick a skillet in the kitchen. I know your type. <laughs> and so, and he has all these old southernisms and that. And he and he says, now if I make any if I'm if I'm if I make anybody mad, if I offend you, just come up after the meeting and I'll forgive you. Now, and 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 so and and so people are just jolted right out of this religious stoic atmosphere, right into who what, who is this guy? And he says, I'm Sam Jones, and I hail from Georgia. He says, now don't call me Reverend Sam Jones. I'm just plain Sam Jones. And he caught everybody so off guard that all of the newspapers are, you know, he's sitting there dragging. He says, you know what, you, you, what is it? You got 90 saloons in this town and 68 of them are run by church members that are sitting in this room. Wow. And you're wanting your culture to change, but you're all you preachers are doing is you're making feather beds for the sinners to light on. And he says, we, don't, we need to make sure the sinners out there in those saloons don't come in here because the crowd in here ain't good enough for them yet. That's the kind of message that he was bringing, and it jolted the religiosity in the city to the point that the newspapers thought, now this is awesome. (laughs) And so they're writing all of this stuff, running it front page the next day, and now all of the ministers are feeling their, their identities are being challenged because now... We can't let someone come in here with all these uh, vicissitudes and you know, all this stuff. You know, they're they're responding out of their intellect, and all the preachers have to have a call a caucus meeting. To, what are we going to do? Because now the whole town is wanting this guy to come back, and he is going to embarrass all of the uh, all of Christianity if we let this guy come back. And I uh, five thousand seat tent. No way this is happening. And so their argument. And their conflict, there's one old guy who lived right down the road here. His name was, his name was W.H. Jackson, not, not Jackson, Andrew Jackson crowd. W.H. Jackson was in Bell Mead. He had a nice place there and he raised the rich, it was some of the greatest race horses in history. W.H. Jackson, Bell Mead Jackson stands up and says, now I know he said some things that shouldn't have been said, but he also said some things that had to be said. Y'all can argue over the tent if you want to, but I'll tell you, I'll pay for the tent and we'll welcome him back. And so none of these preachers, I know these preachers wanted to argue with the rich guy. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So they put up, we got a tent. They sent an invite for Sam Jones to come back. Nobody knows what's going to happen. All they know is this, this crude, rude, Georgia preachers coming back. <laughs> so now it's May. And on May 10th, 1885, Sam shows up in town and he steps off of the train and he goes to the tent. And when he gets to the tent, there are 10,000 people. Wow. In a 5,000 seat tent, they, we got a problem. The streets were absolutely full of masses of humanity just trying to find a place where they could hear the voice 
of this guy. Where was the meeting? Right now, uh, what's there is the federal building. When you're going over Broadway, mm-hmm. when you get there to 8th Avenue, yeah. right there, that big old federal building, that was an empty lot. And that's where the tent was. And the crowd was moving all the way down into where the, right now, where the, the Bridgestone. Oh, wow. Uh, where, where, that's, that's where, that's where it all, that's where it was all going down. Okay. And when he gets, when he gets up to preach that night, he preaches a message and he tells the story of the Battle of Franklin. And when he tells this Battle of Franklin story, he brings up the whole who, who, how many of us are willing to open up our lives to the point to sacrifice whatever is necessary? And he tells the story of all, all the generals that died here in, in Franklin in the battle. And he talks, and he speaks of the supernatural way that God preserved, uh, the, the first Missouri, uh, battalion. And little, little did anybody know at that time that, that what's his name had a whole prayer group in the fields out praying mm-hmm. around that. What's his name? Ian Bounds. Ian Bounds. Bounds had a whole prayer and intercession group, uh, that were here walking and praying and walking and praying and they could saturate this atmosphere with prayer and the purposes of God. And that's what shifted the whole battle of Franklin is when, when they, when they moved into the battle. And now that's a long and a beautiful story. And I wish, I really wish I had time to tell you, but we've got so much I want to tell you tonight. But, but out of that prayer, the atmosphere was charged with the desire of God. Sam Jones gets up in 1885, you know, 20 years after that battle. And there are people sitting there whose mothers and fathers died in, fathers died in that battle. And the, so it was close to home and said, now, now we're going to, we're going to train our guns on, on the demons of hell. And we're, and this place is going to become a place of salvation. How many, how many are willing to fight that battle with me? Thousands of people stood to their feet. And now the next night, next, and here's what happened as a, the, as a result of the very first night. The next morning, 7 a.m. meeting. The tent's full. 10 a.m. meeting. The tent's full. 2 a.m., 2 p.m., the tent's full. 7 p.m. meeting. The tent's full. And now this revival is happening with such, such a, an outpouring that thousands and now for the first time, anyone in history has to start having women's gatherings. Women only today. Uh, the very first women only meetings happened with Sam Jones in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and then it started, and he started going to preaching at the prison. And then they're asking him to come to the Capitol and, and address all of the politicians. And so this hayseed from Georgia stands up with, with eloquence and such brilliance that he holds them captive for two and a half hours in Senate. And uh, that, those are the kind of things that would happen around this guy. And uh, the very first uh, uh, Negro meetings that ever happened, happened right here in Nashville. And, that, and, and that's what they were called, of course, at the time. And, uh, and what happens is, is now all the prostitutes, all the soil doves are getting saved and all the drunks and all the gamblers and are getting saved. And so there's a, there's this riverboat captain says uh, that owned all the saloons. He had 35 steamboats with all the saloons on those 35 steamboats and all those saloons down on lower broad. And, and they're coming in realizing there's no, nobody, in the brothels tonight. 
Even the soiled doves are gone. Where are our where are our drunks and gamblers? Where are our carousers and fighters? They're all gone. And he finally realizes this guy's going to take us completely out of business if we don't do something to stop him. So he gets his thugs and he goes to the meeting that night and said, we'll get rid of this guy. And Sam Jones is walking onto the platform and a little shoeshine boy catches him on the way onto the platform. He says, Mr. Jones, I need to tell you something. He said, there's some man to come here to whoop you tonight and you just need to be careful. And he, and he thanked the little boy for the alert. And he walked on up, first words out of his mouth, before the choir sings, this, this, you know, thug guy, he and his thugs are back in the, in the audience. And they're looking up there, and the choir are prostitutes. <laughs> the drunks and the gamblers are the ushers. They're looking and saying, what in the world is going on here? And then, and then this little preacher walks up on the right on the edge of the platform and says, "I understand some fellers have come here to whoop me tonight." That was the first words of the sermon. He said, "I want you to know I weigh 135 pounds, but 132 and a half of it is backbone. So I'll just welcome. I'll be right over here beside of this tent post right there, pointed to where we'll, we'll meet there when I get done preaching, and I'll welcome the exercise." Wow. And he turns around and starts preaching. Three-fourths of the way through the meeting, he's not even ready to close the, the, the message or anything. He looks up, and here comes this guy walking down the aisle. The whole place goes silent. And Sam just stops and faces him like that. And the guy walks down to about two-thirds of the way down, and he stops and he's in, in front of thousands of people. He says, Sam Jones, I'm the feller that come here to whoop you tonight. <laughs> And he says, but I want you to know that you have whooped me with the gospel. And I give my heart to God and my hand to you as a friend if you'll have me. And the guy walks on up. Sam kneels on the front of the stage there. He walks up and he takes this guy's hand and he prays the prayer of salvation with him. Gives his heart to the Lord. They walk right over where they were going to be fighting. <laughs> and they're standing there after me, and this guy says, Sam, Mr. Reverend Jones, he says, if you will come back here and preach to all the people in the street that nobody wants and the churches won't have, he says, I'll build you a place to preach the word of God. Wow. I'll build you a building, but you got to promise you're going to come back because the churches don't love the people in the streets. They love the people with the, with the, with the checks and the money and, and, you know, because we're trying to be the Athens of the South, rebuilding ourselves out of our own richness and, and unity. You know, even as, as much as unity, how, how important is unity in the word of God? But if we build it on man's unity, that means we don't need God. We just need to unify our theologies and unify our purposes. No, no, we need the presence of God and the power of God. All right. Thanks for hanging with us today, you guys. I'm sure you enjoyed listening to Ray Hughes and make sure you click to the next podcast and get to hear part two. Connect with us on braveworship.com and Brave Worship on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to the Brave Worship podcast with Dove Award winning songwriter Chrissy Nordhoff and worship leader and music pastor Mary Beth Dodd. Visit braveworship.com forward slash free song and sign up for the email list to get updates on all the latest Brave Worship events, conferences, and retreats. Plus, get free songs to use in your next worship service, complete with chord chart, 
and track. Also, find out how you can join Chrissy and Mary Beth in person at the next Brave Worship Conference. Simply visit braveworship.com forward slash conference to learn more. The times I've grown most as a songwriter are the times I've had mentors showing me the way. If you're looking to grow as a songwriter, we're now accepting applications for our Worship Songwriter Mentorship. Now, it's available only a few times each year. The Worship Songwriter Mentorship is a songwriting intensive that will help you craft impactful worship songs. It's a course created by Dove Award-winning and Grammy-nominated, uh, drumroll here please, <laughs> our founder, pro songwriter Chrissy Nordoff. It's a small group community, and it's led by other songwriters over the course of nine weeks. It's an intensive course and a small group co-writing environment, and that means you'll be added to a special group of about 12 writers, give or take. Each group is led by experienced songwriters, some of them my dear, dear friends, and I've even gotten to lead a group or two. Rachel here, by the way. We love the church, and we love to champion fellow worship songwriters just like yourself. In this mentorship, you'll learn how to write songs for you and your congregation. You'll go deeper in your intimacy with Jesus, You'll get the tools needed to help craft songs more easily and never run out of creative ideas. Okay, I know it sounds too good to be true, but trust me, this course is a game changer. You'll learn how to leverage your unique songwriting personality and connect with other like-minded writers in a meaningful way. Truly, I can't think of another course, group of people, community that has impacted my songwriting the way that this mentorship has. If you're wanting to take the next steps in your songwriting journey, then apply now at the link in our show notes. We hope to see you there.